We're now into the depths of the campaign season. That means an endless bombardment of advertising that's mostly negative. We get daily updates on what the latest trends indicate for the outcome, even though the polls have been wrong so often in recent years. What's really going on out there as we are two and a half weeks from Election Day? Our program this week will try to bring some sense to it all and talk about our brand new school. Here come the midterms. It's Saturday, October 22nd, and River Radio is ready to rock. Come down, turn the radio on. Coming to you from our studios in beautiful Midtown Marina on St. Croix, bordering the wild and scenic St. Croix, this is River Radio. I'm Jim Maher. And I'm Gail Knudsen. Our technical director, Matt Quast, is not here this week, and we miss him, but thanks to him for always being there for us. Elaine Larson uh, handles our webpage, and Laura Lee DiLorenzo handles publicity, and thanks to Chan Poling in the suburbs for our theme music. The program is produced by Jim and Gail and presented by the Marine Community Library. The library is located on the traditional, ancestral, and contemporary homelands of Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples. On today's program, Jim brings back our esteemed political roundtable with Laurie Sturdivant of the Star Tribune, Fred D. Sam Lazaro of PBS NewsHour and Undertold Stories, and Brian Gruis, River Radio's national political editor. Later in the show, I'll have a chat with Dr. Kimberly Cox. She's the energetic principal of the new Marine Village School, the charter school located just behind River Radio Studios that opened this fall. Along with those listening on Zoom, welcome to those tuning into us via the Marine Fan Supporter and Booster page on Facebook. All shows, including everything from the past three seasons and our other two shows from this season, are available wherever you get your podcasts or at the River Radio page on the library's website, marinecommunitylibrary.org. Well, it, uh, I'm thinking uh, as we get going here, Gail, I'm watching the box elders uh, <laughs> crawl over my script. Uh, the box elder bugs are all over the place here. Thousands here in the house, <laughs> even more on the south side of the house. Yeah, outside. for sure. Especially they're, they're in their last burst here with the warm weather. So a few more days with them. Hey, it's the season of debates. Uh, there you go. It's the season of debates or what we prefer to conduct here, uh, candidate forums. And uh, you and I had the chance to moderate our first candidate forum on Thursday night for the Marine City Council. Pretty good event. It was a great event. It was well attended both in person and online. And all the candidates were super respectful, just uh, almost group hugging each other. So it was it was a nice, friendly debate. It, it was. We didn't have anybody uh, like pull out a badge to prove it something or right or any any histrionics it was yeah it was all very civil and and uh we really appreciate that we've done these forums in the past and it's always turned out that way so that's great um for folks in our home area there's two forums next week on tuesday night october 25th in scandia i have the honor of moderating a forum involving the candidates for scandia city council as well as current mayor christine Majewski, who's running unopposed this year that's at 6.30 at the Scandia Community Center, or there's a link to watch it online that you can find on our show page. 
And on Thursday, October 27th, in the Marine Village Hall, Jim and I will again moderate a forum, this one for the mayoral candidates in Marine. That begins at 7 p.m., and there's a link to more information on that on our show page, including a way to watch the event online. And to find out results in the fastest way, Join River Radio on election night, November 8th, from 9 to 11 p.m. on Zoom for our live coverage. Well, it's time for one of uh, my favorite conversations when we have this group on, bringing in our political roundtable, three people who have contributed so much to this show since our first season. Those who listen to us often know them. Uh, those who listen to us often know them well. We're happy to have back Lori Sturdivant, longtime political reporter and now a columnist for the Star Tribune. I'd say Lori knows as much as anybody about the political landscape in Minnesota and certainly a lot beyond Minnesota as well. Lori, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you, Jim and Gail. Also with us is our pal Fred D. Sam Lazaro, who you see frequently on PBS NewsHour with reports he produces for his creation, the Undertold Stories Project. I think we were lucky to grab Fred, who is uh, back in travel mode these days. Welcome, Fred. Pleasure to be here, as always, Jim and Gail. And, of course, our team wouldn't be complete without our local expert, national political editor Brian Gruss. Brian, thanks for being here again. Good morning. Great to be here. Well, I encourage us to uh, feel free, the three of you, to uh, to go back and forth on anything I bring up. I may direct a question to one person, but it's open to anybody. And I'm going to start with you, Lori. This has, uh, to me, been a really unusual political season in the sense that we have all sorts of discussions about voter uh, voting integrity you had talked a couple of years ago on this show about all the issues that were being raised that make it more difficult for people to vote compared to what the trends had been prior to that. And I also feel like we have candidates who are basically going along saying, I want to play this game, but I may not go by the rules because I might not agree to the outcome. Uh, what do you make of all this? Well, what I have been wishing, Jim, is that uh, our voters would be taking this, what I see as a real threat to democracy, more seriously as they consider their votes this year. Uh, various polls I've seen, mostly national polls, I must say, indicate that uh, uh, concerns about democracy are out there, but they're not really primary voting issues. The people are tend to be voting more on the economy. The economy, there's plenty to worry about there. But if we lose our democracy in this country, our ability to affect our futures economically or otherwise, it's going to be much diminished. And that there is a real threat right now if we are if we only have one party that's willing to re respect the results of elections. So that's a fear I have. Yeah, I think that's legitimate. And Fred, I wonder if uh, this kind of talk challenging our electoral system becomes disheartening to voters. And do you think maybe that's that's an intentional strategy? Uh, probably an answer beyond my pay grade, but it certainly is uh, unsettling to um, a lot of people that we you know, are actually questioning the very process and tallying, uh, which has never been the case. I get the sense, and Laurie might be able to uh, shed more light, that we um, are somewhat sheltered uh, from that in Minnesota. There seems to be a reasonable... Um, confidence in our system 
of voting. We have a very different history electorally, I suspect, in the state than, than others. But nationally, um, I do think this is something that uh, voters, the polls say, are not that tuned into. They're concerned about the economy, as Laurie said. The pocketbook issues always seem to predominate at this time of the of the uh, election season, and that's no exception this year. So, so yeah, I, uh, it's troubling, but it doesn't seem a top of mind for a lot of voters. Uh, Lori, uh, what do you think? Minnesota is a little less uh, subject to what, what, as Fred talked about there. Well, I think we are, but we don't have. We, that doesn't give us an excuse to be complacent. I, I think in this century, with each succeeding election, it's been my sense that we are more prone rather than less to being part of national waves and national movements. We used to talk about a lot about how Minnesota was exceptional in political and other ways, and we don't talk about that as much because it's, I think, probably arguably not as true. That said, we have had our courts do our redistricting for many years. That's been largely an accident, but nevertheless, it has spared us from some of the worst of gerrymandering which part of this phenomenon of, of not trusting elections. We've had uh, very well administered elections for a long time. And I, I give a salute to my, my friend and book writing partner, Joan Groh, who was our secretary of state for 24 years in the latter part of the 20th century and really set the bar high for very efficient, well-run elections that, have, that involve each time we have a statewide election, 30,000 people are election judges in the state. So we have a great deal of local attention, local um, concern, local uh, watching of the of election process. And that really helps keep these elections honest. And of course, we have a tradition of high turnout that goes way back to our New England and our Scandinavian roots. All that does help Minnesota fend off some of the worst of the democracy denying movement that seems to be afflicting the Republican Party right now. Nevertheless, we, we can't be complacent. Brian, let me bring you in here. Um, and as we talk about the state or the local races or congressional races, it seems like things are getting more nationalized. And how do you think that might impact things? So you're absolutely right. And to follow on what Lori said, um, I'm, I'm a believer uh, and continue to believe in some degree of Minnesota exceptionalism. But these races are getting nationalized. And, and a great example of that is uh, Jensen, the Jensen-Walls contest. So it, you'd think if you listen to the advertising, look at the billboards driving down the freeway that Jensen is uh, running for chair of the Federal Reserve because he, <laughs> he keeps emphasizing inflation. And basically, if, if you look at these races around the country, and of course, I travel a lot with my, uh, my occupation, it seems that the, the, the ads that you see among Republicans are, are uh, tuned to the inflation and crime channel 24 and 7. And of course, uh, on the Democrat side, it's uh, emphasizing choice, uh, abortion rights, uh, and those kinds of things. And, and there's relatively little difference. In fact, it strikes me when I travel around the country that if you just substitute a different candidate name on the Republican or Democratic side, these ads could be in almost any district in the country. So by nationalizing the races, I mean that the messaging has become quite similar you know, it used to be said that all politics is local. And in, in the age that we're in today, it seems as if these national messages um, are transferable from one jurisdiction to another. And so an issue like crime, an issue like inflation uh, tends to gain traction. 
uh, if you're a Republican. And of course, um, Democrats have seized on the, uh, the Supreme Court ruling, uh, emphasizing right to choice. And, uh, and of course, we see that in Minnesota. Anybody who's in the Twin Cities uh, can avoid seeing ads uh, from Angie Craig and Tyler Kistner. And they're very much borrowing from this national playbook in terms of their messaging. And in some respects, uh, not too much to distinguish it as a local race. Uh, again, if you didn't know the candidates' names, it'd be hard to believe uh, or hard to, uh, to associate them in any way with Minnesota specifically. Mm-hmm. So, Fred, um, Brian mentioned the abortion issue. And, and after the Roe versus Wade decision or the Dobbs decision uh, this spring, the conventional wisdom this summer was that the abortion issue might be the big driver of turnout and really uh, and maybe turn the election in the Democrats' favor this year. And it seems like lately that we don't hear as much about that. Uh, what's your sense? Do you think abortion's still a big player out there? And could we be surprised the way a lot of people were surprised by the outcome of that one abortion vote in Kansas this August? You know, I'm, I'm continually impressed by the shorter and ever shortening life, uh, shelf life uh, of issues. Um, there's a wave of, um, of emotional response, you know, to, to something like this. Uh, to a major development that swings a lot of voters and uh, and then it dissipates and the rate at which it seems to be dissipating is uh, is, is is really impressive you know the, these pendulum swings are just so so much shorter it seems to me whereas on economic issues you know there are perpetual reminders of inflation that you know every time you go to gas your car up or you go into a grocery store so they're much more enduring uh, issues and so I'm not sure how durable uh, the abortion issue uh, becomes at the end of three months because so much has seemed to have happened since that decision. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Hey, Lori, let's talk about Minnesota for a second. We have all these statewide races this year for governor, attorney general, secretary of state, and auditor. We don't have a Senate race this year, but it's been a while since a Republican has won one of the statewide races What's your read on uh, the situation this year? Well, you're right. It's been since 2006 and Tim Pawlenty when we've had a a Republican win one of the state's constitutional offices. And by that, I mean governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state and state auditor. How about that for rattling that off? It's uh, so we are, uh, some would say, overdue in a state that's still pretty purple when it comes to it, its uh, voting predilections. It's we're maybe overdue for a Republican win in one of those offices. Uh, it would be a, a big change, though, for the attorney general's office, for example, to be won by a Republican since that office has been held by a Democrat since Warren Spanis won it in 1970. Wow. So we're talking about a long wow. time here. Uh, all these races are close. It, it's, it's, uh, it speaks to Minnesota's perpetual political divisions. We, we, have, we, we turn up to be a blue state in presidential elections, but that blue color uh, it turns pretty purple if you look down the ballot. And that's been the case for the long time I've been watching Minnesota politics. We are prone down ballot to electing Republicans. And so I would say the state legislature, House and Senate, both on the ballot this year and both very much in play. And uh, with the exception of, I think the governor's race is most likely to go right now. Every poll I've seen shows Tim Walls in the lead with the varying margins, but his lead has been consistent all year. 
other than that race, you'd have to say every other race down the ballot is in question. And that um, makes Minnesota politics fun to cover. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it so, does, yeah. <laughs> and, and Laurie, really quick, back to the Walls-Jensen race. Um, I mean, I think some people, and, and maybe even people in the Walls camp, were feeling okay about running against Scott Jensen because he seemed to be more on the extreme side of things. But I, it seems like he's made it a more competitive race, maybe than the Walls people expected. Do you think that's the case? Well, yes. And it speaks again to the, the fact that there is a Republican wave nationally, I think that has developed. It goes with the tradition of a midterm election running contrary to the party of the president. So there is that phenomenon. And it's uh, there is certainly a lot of money being spent in this race, which always tends to tighten up races in Minnesota. With this governor's race, I've been sort of surprised by what we're not talking about. And this goes to Brian's point about how the the race seems to be all about either abortion and crime if one is a Republican candidate or about abortion if one is a DFL candidate or Democratic candidate. We aren't talking about so many issues, <clears throat> with, the, <clears throat> with the exception just lately about uh, the the, ta- the state taxation issue that is now today on the front page of the Star Tribune. Um, we we aren't talking about <clears throat> some issues that really matter at the state level. This tax issue is a big one, and it's a high time now, October twenty second, that we begin to talk about that issue. Hmm. Okay. I'm speaking, by the way, with our political roundtable, Lori Sturdivant, Fred DeSam Lazaro, and Brian Gruis. And Brian, I mentioned in the introduction how the polls have been off the mark a lot recently. Do you think there's any reason to think they'll be more accurate this time around? Well, uh, um, at the risk of ducking the question, who knows? We'll find out after <laughs> November 8th. I, I can say this, that the, um, that the trend in polling, if there is such a thing, uh, 2016, 2020, has been generally, if you take the average of hundreds of polls around the country, it's been to slightly underestimate GOP performance, and especially the uh, the House and Senate races, and of course, even in the race for, um, for president. I know even going back to 2016, a lot of us, of course, were surprised uh, in the middle of the night to, to find out that Donald Trump was president. Um, the polling did not really reflect that. So the last several years have been uh, interesting, to say the least, in the polling world. So, so GOP candidates have tended to perform a bit better. So one really notable exception was the uh, Kansas ballot referendum on the uh, constitutional right to choice. And those polls, um, almost all of them underestimated uh, progressives or Democrats' performance in terms of point of view on that issue. And, and some by a large, a large margin, um, some by as much as 10 or 12 points. Um, the Real Clear Politics average showed a very, very slight edge uh, for progressives in that uh, issue, but then it turned out to be, of course, 60-40, so it wasn't even close. So I think in, in Democrats' dreams, uh, they are thinking that it's possible that polling could be off by that much and that it would be a blue wave, and I think that's certainly not going to happen. In my view, it doesn't look like a blue wave. Um, I think um, at this point, the best they can hope for is that it's not a red wave. Uh, but of course, uh, we shall see. Uh, and part of that goes to the mood of the electorate. And uh, Fred, uh, is your sense? I, I'm almost starting to get the sense that it feels a little like 2016 again. And as 
uh, Brian mentioned, uh, few of us expected Donald Trump to come out victorious in that, but there was definitely this this mood in the electorate of of let's try something different. And do you think something like that is going on right now? I just want to go back to this idea of, of you know measuring GOP um, sentiment or inclinations in polls. I think. Uh, um, my guess is that based on the trajectory we've seen, we're seeing more accurate polling because people who may have been reluctant to share their views or leanings are less um, shy about doing so in an age, you know, after we've seen, you know, the Trump presidency, it's, you know, a lot has been normalized that wasn't in 2016. I think, um, you know, I think we are seeing polling that, as Brian says, you know, who knows at this point, but my guess is that we're getting to be a little more accurate. And 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 sorry, Jim, can you clarify the question again? I'm not sure I'm really hitting. Oh, yeah. I was, it, it was about whether there's this um, sour mood that I, I think existed in 2016 that maybe we didn't really realize till the outcome of the election in 2016. Do you think something similar might be happening here? You know, if sourness is one of the byproducts of the... Um, of, of the divisiveness that we have in our politics, uh, that might be an indication, yes, that there's an overall sour mood and it gets aggravated by every report about inflation and gas prices and, you know, in, in whatever ways the average voter will encounter, you know, the, the larger, you know, meta trends in the economy. So my guess is that, yes, it's probably pretty sour or souring, um, and it, and it could be that you know, the amount that we're bombarded in this electoral season by um, advertising and, uh, and, and the meanness of it all you know, contributes a little bit to it because you know, the person you're supporting is being bombarded by the other side. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, I mean, there are just so many dynamics that uh, make you long for the British system, however chaotic it might <laughs> seem right now. Oh, that's they desperate. Have very, <laughs> they have short bursts of, uh, you know, of chaos, um, but it doesn't last more than six weeks. And, you know, the, the present, yeah. uh, you know, kerfuffle, you know, accepted. Yeah, you're right. I, I agree with that. Definitely. I agree. I wish we had a six week campaign. That would be nice. Uh, Lori, let's talk about the congressional races in Minnesota. And Brian referred to the Angie Craig, Tyler Kistner race. That seems to be the one we're seeing the most ads uh, um, on TV about. Is that maybe the only really swing race among the Minnesota congressional races this year? I think it really is. Uh, I was visiting this week with some folks who have connections in the 8th district, and they were trying to persuade me that that race is indeed closer, that, that Republican incumbent Pete Stauber is actually facing a pretty stiff challenge from Jen Schultz. And I suspect that in some precincts of Duluth, it looks that way because that's where Jen Schultz has been a state legislator for many years and, and has a, a base. But Pete Stauber is a former county commissioner, a former policeman and a hockey star from that Duluth area that lives in Hermantown now. He also has a bit of a base in Duluth and that I think will continue to serve him well in this uh, season when it's, the Republicans do have the wind at their back and that will help Pete Stauber as well. So it, in, I think we do have just one really exciting congressional race. And like Brian said, those of us in the Twin Cities know all about its advertisements because we see them constantly. Um, I'd, I'd like to make a, just a comment about negative advertising, which is something I've, uh, I, when I go out and speak to groups over the last many 
years, I am always struck by how unpopular negative advertising is, mm -hmm. and and yet how persistent it is as as political consultants continue to insist that this is the only kind of advertising that really works. I've, I've wondered a lot about the long-term damage to our democracy we do with that kind of advertising. I remember once being with a group of, of women from around the country speaking at a national conference. And I said, it was asked why more women don't run for office. And I said, I think negative advertising is part of the story and women nodded their heads all around the room. We, uh, we have more pernicious effects on our democracy that I think we acknowledge when we consistently run our campaigns with this, this kind of screed, not, and as Fred says, it's not just for the, the British polite six weeks, it's for months on end, persuading people that our politicians are people of low character and that our, our government is not worthy of their time and attention, I fear. It's, it's um, something I wish we took more seriously. Uh, I think that's an excellent point, Laurie, and I, I thank you for bringing that up. Uh, and Brian, so let me, <laughs> having heard Lori say that, now let me go back to the horse race and it just very, <laughs> very quickly, can you talk about that? The Senate will is always something in the midterms that we pay a lot of attention to, especially with a 50-50 Senate right now. Uh, are there, what, what do you think are the three or four races that are going to be the deciders in which way the Senate goes this year? So I would really look at two races primarily as opportunities for either party to flip a Senate seat, which is a relatively rare um, occurrence. And I, I think the two biggest possibilities for uh, changes in party are in Pennsylvania, where John Fetterman's running a tight race against Dr. Oz in Nevada, uh, Catherine Cortez uh, Masto against Adam Laxalt. So um, Drum roll for the uh, the River Radio National Political Editors predictions here, but I think uh, <laughs> I think that uh, I think that we will end up with here it goes with a 50-50 Senate again, a different wow. composition, but um, I think a 50-50 Senate uh, with uh, the the Vice President as tiebreaker, and the reason I say that is that I think that we'll get uh, a narrow victory in Pennsylvania by John Fetterman. And I think uh, the Republican uh, Laxalt will flip the seat in Nevada. So that's a, a, a net no change. And um, it looks to me like the other seats will stay, at least in terms of party affiliation, some new faces, but the same party affiliation. So, for example, Ron Johnson uh, looks slightly ahead in Wisconsin. Mark Kelly, the incumbent, I think will prevail in Arizona. Uh, Raphael Warnock, I think, uh, will uh win over Herschel Walker. And by the way, in that Georgia race, uh, a very interesting aspect of Georgia races that we're familiar with from the past, there will likely be a runoff in Georgia December 6th. The reason being that if no candidate receives 50% in Georgia, a uh, runoff needs to occur. And a very obscure gentleman whose name I did not know until a few days ago named Chase Oliver of the Libertarian Party in Georgia who's running um, may have an impact on that race. And just a few points can swing the race one way or another between Warnock and, uh, and Herschel Walker. So uh, if there's a runoff race, we may not know uh, the Senate, uh, the composition of the Senate till December 6th uh, when the runoff race is complete. And uh, in a 50-50, very closely divided Senate, it means that we get to sit on the edge of our seats and watch more of this unfold for even longer. 
Okay. And real quick, Fred, uh, before we let everybody go here, I just, as we've been talking about our electoral system and you, you mentioned Britain before, but I'm just curious, you're starting to travel the world more again now after uh, COVID. What sense do you have of how people in other countries are looking at America today, given our political environment? It's not something I've really um, polled in any even personal way, but the, the broader sense one gets is that America's leadership, um, and by that I mean not its financial might, not its economic might, but its leadership morally um, for institutions that are indestructible democratic institutions, that uh, is not as sturdy as it once was. And... Um, and, and the ability to lecture um, countries from Turkey to India to, um, to even Burma to you know, name your <laughs> name your country that people fear you know of uh, you know are are seeing democracy fray. Um, America's moral voice is perhaps not as clear and loud as as its reputation you know has been in the past. All right. Thanks, Fred. And, and very quickly, Lori, last word from you on uh, anything in particular. What are you watching closest on election night? Well, I'll be watching the Minnesota legislature, as I always do. Uh, the Minnesota legislature, we have had divided government in Minnesota for 30 of the last 32 years, and it's not been a period covered with glory in state history. Divided government has to work better if we continue with divided government. Okay, great. Well, as usual, another great discussion. I'd love to carry it out for the full hour, but we'll have to pick it up again on election night. Uh, Lori, Fred, and Brian, thank you all for joining us again. Thank Pleasure. you, Jerry. Good luck talk with you. Bye-bye. Lori Sturdivant is columnist with the Star Tribune. Fred D. Sam Lazaro is with PBS NewsHour and the Undertold Stories Project. And Brian Gruis is our national political editor here at River Radio. We'll shift gears now from politics to education. Several years ago, when the Stillwater School District closed Marine Elementary, we felt the knockout punch right here in our own town. This September, the doors of the former Marine Elementary School opened again, this time as a charter school known as Marine Village School. Dr. Kimberly Cox joined the staff as principal. Dr. Cox has been an educator for over 25 years and has a bachelor's degree in arts with a certification in K through 12 vocal music, a master's degree in educational leadership and a doctoral degree in education and teacher leadership. Before moving into school administration, she directed hundreds of musical theater productions for students of all ages. Dr. Cox is with us today to talk about the school reopening and what lies ahead. Dr. Cox, welcome to River Radio. Oh my goodness, good morning. Thanks so much for having us. Well, our River Radio studios, but up against the Marine Village Schools Forest and Playground, and I have to say it's great to hear the yelling and laughter again. Right? Uh, that uh, it makes my heart happy to just see those little feet. I can see them uh, through my office window and I hear their voices coming and going. It, it's, uh, it's what education is all about. Now you hail from Miami originally. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about your background and your journey here to Marine? 
Oh, that's so kind of you to ask. I am from Miami. What am I doing in the, in the frozen tundra? Yeah, no, we're going to find out this winter how you like it. Right? Oh, no, <laughs> I, I am so lucky to be here in Minnesota. And I was fascinated um, by the roundtable conversation that was just occurring. So I think one of the reasons that my heart is so drawn to charters is that um, I attended something very much like a charter. Um, when I was in sixth grade, I announced to my mom that I didn't want to go to the public school um, where my district was assigned in Miami. And in Miami, it's a big no-no to um, try and go out of district. There are no um, open choice schools. And I wanted to go to a magnet school for the arts. And she's, both of my parents said, you have to be talented to go there. And I said, well, oh. I am talented. <laughs> and they said, what can you do? And I said, I think I can sing. And so they they took me to the building with my uh, karaoke uh, track of memory from cats. And this little, you know, 70 pound person found her way to the audition room. And it changed my life from seventh grade to 12th grade. I attended programs that were specifically designed uh, for performing arts students um, with rigorous academics. And that was just a turning point in my life. And I've always wanted to offer the same opportunity for students that really wanted to, to drill down in uh, a subject that they were particularly interested in. And, and charters are, are a way to make that happen for a student. Well, once a performer, always a performer. So with that yes. background in, in theater and music, you must have some plans to use that or in those skills at Marine Village. Oh School. my, oh my goodness. I'm so lucky that um, because we're going to always strive to be small, I get to stay connected to the classroom. So um, with, um, with our school opening just a few weeks ago, we were able to install an entire piano lab. So every student um, works on a piano once a week. Um, I'm still able to teach music and I get to teach theater. So I still get to be connected to students and um, keep my, my teapot full, you know, so that I can pour into others. Um, they are a joy to me. So I still get to stay connected to them. Well, let's talk about the school. You, um, how have your first weeks um, of school gone so far? Oh my goodness. Somebody came into the building the other day and, and students were quietly working and they said, I thought you guys opened. And I said, we did. And they said, it's so quiet. And I said, that's, that's them working. And they were like, oh my goodness. It's, it's like working in Shangri-La. Um, our three classrooms are hard at work uh, all morning from 8.30 to 11.30. We're heavily invested in our academic studies. Um, of course, got to throw some snacks and recess in there so that they get what they, those students need. Um, but the first few weeks, I can't even believe we're, we're through it, have been magical. We know our student body really well. They are so happy and settled and thriving, um, not only in their academic settings in the morning, but then after lunch, students go on to um, study a variety of different subjects. And so it's so exciting to see um, them start to gravitate towards things that really interest them. Um, and the teaching staff, oh my goodness, um, we've all said, well, we just want to retire from here. So I hope they hope they love us because we want to stay forever. Um, oh, that's great. Right, right. It's, it's such, a, such a joy and an honor to watch young students learn. So I have to say first month and a half in the books has been um, pretty fantastic. So tell me, what's it take to start a charter school? This isn't like step, <laughs> this isn't like stepping into anything already existing and tweaking it here and there and leaving your personal imprint. It's it's a startup. 
it's a startup. Well, you don't know what you don't know, right? So um, thank goodness uh, for the board of directors and Wynn Miller at the helm, because for a few years, they've been laying the foundation for for this magical moment to happen. I came on on July 1, and I just got to start dreaming big dreams. But it's so funny, you think, um, oh, I need to staple this piece of paper. Oh, we don't have any staplers, <laughs> so, oh. because we're brand new. So in August, you know, we were making lists of everything that you normally walk into an office, and those things are already there. Um, but through planning and funding and, and volunteers and everybody coming together, uh, we're ready to go. But you're right. It is unlike anything else when you're starting from scratch. It's a different experience. But what a joy because you get to, as a faculty, come together and say, okay, what's really important to our families? And that's the, that's the direction we're going in. There haven't been any preconceived notions of uh, things that we need to adhere to. We, we kind of guide our own ship. Um, what's the famous saying? I'm not afraid of storms because I know how to sail my ship. And so we know that uh, trying times will come, but for right now, we are just celebrating that we are open. Uh, our families are happy and our students are happy. So can you talk a little bit about the school's mission and how you see the teachers' roles and the administration roles fitting into that mission? Oh, my goodness. Um, we are honored to have four pillars um, ahead of us. Um, so we have rigorous academics, uh, ecology, service, and community. And particularly from somebody like myself, who's from such a large place, um, you hear community tossed around a lot. Oh, you know, you have to be connected to your community. But until you're in Marine, um, you don't fully grasp what that looks and feels like. And I'll, I'll kind of go backwards and say that to have the community foundational support that wherever our students go, they are being uplifted and, and held up um, as just for the unique tiny people that they are. Uh, that has been tremendous. And in turn, we will teach our students um, to be servant-hearted and, and in their service towards the community that has grounded them. The teachers and administration have just been um, like in lockstep as far as where are every one of these students coming from? You know, this is hopefully the last round of COVID kids, you know, that, that we right. will see that some of these students um, have never been in school. Some of these students had to learn, um, you know, phonics through a mask. And so what are the, the long lasting effects of that? And how do we navigate those things? We're so fortunate to be small because we can see every student's individual needs, um, whether it be a strength or weakness and step in and walk alongside them. The beauty of our small classes is that when we sit down for a faculty meeting in the afternoons, we're able to say, can we watch this student in um, their performance of this task? He may need a little extra help. The, also the beauty in that is, can we watch this student because he is soaring in this one area and we might wanna put him you know, in a different grouping um, so he can accelerate and move forward. So all of those, um, those conversations around rigorous academics, they're so exciting um, because we're able to see them very clearly in every student and address it. 
Well, I'm talking right now with Dr. Kimberly Cox. She's principal at Marine Village School here in Marine on St. Croix. Dr. Cox, what kind of feedback are you getting about the school from your families this year? Oh, my goodness. The families are so kind. Um, they are so on board that even when I have a challenging situation, I had a mama just look at me and she said, I trust you. Whatever you decide, I trust you. To have that kind of support, um, not only just as a teacher in my heart, but as an, as an overall leader, um, it's humbling. It's very humbling because what is the most precious thing that a family has? Their children. So to know that we are entrusted with that, I was speaking with a parent the other day and, and she said, I so appreciate that you asked my child what they would prefer in this situation. She said, it's one thing to ask me and I can give my input, but to know that you went and sought my child out and asked them what they prefer, you know, um, little people can, they can guide their steps. Um, so all the way down to the kindergarten level, we want to give students a sense of autonomy. And I think uh, I think families are really appreciating that. So, so far, so good. Um, it, feel, it feels good. So back when I was young, there were two choices for school, private or you went to the traditional public school. We didn't have choices um, out there like they do today with language immersion or STEM or STEAM charter schools. So how do you market Marine Village School with all the choices available to families? You know, I think choice is wonderful. Um, I think choice is a privilege. Um, I, I often say, I think every school, whether private, public, Montessori, charter, I think every school is doing what they feel is best at any given time. You will never hear me um, dogging another school. What I think a charter offers and, and ours uh, specifically is that, you know, small is mighty is our, is our tagline. Right. And I, use, I use it on every newsletter because that is our niche. That's where we fit into the educational realm. Um, the larger districts can offer such interesting things to students. Um, and I praise them for that and say, go get them. What we want us always strive to be is small because there are amazing things that we can do with students because we're so incredibly connected to them. Every teacher knows every student's name. We understand their ups and downs. And I think that in particular, that's where our charter fits. Also, look at the land that we are so fortunate to sit on and to be so close to the state parks and to the river. Um, our opportunity to teach through the lens of ecology um, is so interesting. Like for, for somebody from who went to a concrete school uh, in Miami, to think that we're allowed to walk outside and take a walk through the forest is, is fascinating and inspiring to me. So although I think every school brings something to the table that should be cherished and honored. I think our school in particular um, is so cool because our goal is never to be this massive uh, place that's able to offer you know, everything under the sun. We will hone in on specific things and do them well because small is mighty. So what are your expectations for the second year here in terms of enrollment? So um, I see things like the, the little engine that could is reaching the top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's going to be a fast ride um, on, on the way down. I've had many families um, reach out and say, we're super excited 
about what you're doing and we can't wait to save our spot for next year. And kind of the myth that, that we want to dispel is that you, you can't um, save a spot for next year. The only students who are guaranteed a spot for next year are students that are registered for this year. So if you're thinking about, ooh, I think I'd really love to tap into that model of education, it would be important that between now and the end of the school year that your student is actually registered and in one of our classes. Um, if not, then we go to the lottery um, which uh, we will draw from uh, in March, and then you'll be notified uh, where your student, um, you know, is placed in the classroom. There is um, a benefit to siblings. So if you have a sibling already enrolled, that does help. But really and truly, the only way to make sure that you are a happy Marine Village uh, School student for next year is to register to enroll and register for in this current school year. All right, well, currently you've got some combined grades um, and will be the, that be the case in the future or do you anticipate um, one class per grade or more than one class per grade? I anticipate that we will be full. I anticipate that um, we will no longer be combining classes, that mm -hmm. each grade will have a, a separate uh, teacher. Um, however, it is important um, just to stress that even if we're on a waiting list status, we won't double our grades. So there will always be one kindergarten, one first grade, one second grade, all the way up to, to fifth grade. Um, it is not our goal um, to be huge. We want to maintain our quaintness, maintain our community, um, and maintain the family feel that we've built there at the school. I know that that's very important to the families, the foundational families that are with us now, is that we just don't want to lose uh, knowing every single student personally um, for the unique gifts that they bring to the table. So get in while the getting's good. Yeah. So I've seen lots of yard signs promoting small is mighty. Now, along with that slogan, does the school have a mascot yet? We don't. Um, it, we've been speaking about it with our board and I'm thinking, well, we need to bring it to the students uh, as well and see what they what they dream up. We're just thankful that uh, we're up and going. The doors are open. Um, we've got all of our academics are running strong. We've started our fall production. And so now we've got time and space in our brains uh, to think of the next exciting thing, which is we need to name our mascot. Oh, that'll be fun. Everybody will have a good time doing that, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one more question. How can the community help Marine Village Schools succeed? Oh, my goodness. Kind what of loaded, has, isn't it? <laughs> right? What hasn't the, the community done? And for those um, who are tuning in that don't have students at the school, I just want to tell you what the community is already doing. For example, we have um, a, a tiny little visitor who comes in uh, every week. Her name is Joy, and she's a tiny little puppy. Um, her mama, uh, Kirsten, works uh, at the Marine Mills Folk School, to whom we are wonderful uh, partners of in crime with there as we share the building. And I was noticing that Joy comes in on Tuesday mornings to sit with her mom while mom does some work. And I asked mama, would Joy be willing to read with our students? Because sometimes when you're a little person and there's a 
big adult sitting across from you saying, okay, we're going to work on your reading skills. That can be intimidating if you're feeling nervous about that. And I thought if we put a sweet puppy in their lap, maybe reading to joy would take some pressure off. And so we started our reading with joy program. And so little sweet joy uh, brings her happy self in with her bag of treats so that she stays focused. And she reads with students for a couple hours on Tuesday mornings. And when I say that that kind of community support makes it so special for our students, we have um, volunteers coming in uh, with Spanish, with uh, more reading skills, helping in the music department, in the oncology department. And so I would say, if you want to know what's going on with students, come volunteer. When you watch their light bulbs go ding over their head, you'll be hooked. Um, we do everything from salsa dancing classes to help celebrate our uh, Spanish curriculum, everything down to cooking classes. So um, I guarantee you, if you're interested, we can find a spot for you in our happy village. Oh, super. Um, and I want all the listeners to know that they can get in touch with the school and find you on uh, our show page. We'll have the website for Marine Village School there. So if you have a talent or you just want to just want to go in and help out, I have a feeling Dr. Cox would be thrilled to have your skills. We'll put you to work. Oh, good. Well, thank you for joining us today here on River Radio, Dr. Cox. Thank you. It's such an honor, and I hope everybody has a great Saturday. I was just talking with Dr. Kimberly Cox. Dr. Cox is the principal at Marine Village School. And well, now, now for well, some news, huh, Jim? Well, just before that, Gail, I just want to mention that River Radio is presented by Marine Community Library, and I want to thank everybody who joined us on October 7th to celebrate the library's 10th birthday. I especially want to thank Michael Hall, the children's book author who spoke to our group. He is just an incredibly creative artist and writer, and our audience was thoroughly entertained and enraptured with this presentation. And if you haven't looked at Michael's children's books, they're, they're just tremendous and they're worth looking at. They're worth getting for kids. They, they'll love them. Uh, we now have another fascinating event on the calendar in November. Local author Patty Isaacs will talk about her experiences in China. She and her late husband Gauss living China, lived in China for a year in 1981 at a time when China was just at the start of its post-Mao transformation. She went back in 2006 to a very different country for a six-month stint. She reflects on those two fascinating cultural experiences in her new book, The Second Long March. She'll talk about it at a library program on Thursday, November 17th at 7 o'clock p.m. in the Marine Village Hall. I hope you can be there for that event. Lutheran Church in Marine has a new portable bread oven, thanks to the efforts of Kevin Neinheis, John Goodfellow, Mike Tibbetts, Kurt Moe, and others who built it from scratch. The oven weighs in at 7,000 pounds and has a three foot by five foot baking surface, which allows for 25 regular loaves of bread to be baked at one time. Neinheis says he's looking forward to many community bakes in the upcoming months and years, from community bread baking to pizza parties. If you are interested in learning more about the oven or participating in future community baking events, contact Christ Lutheran Church. Their info is on our show page. 
Christ Lutheran will be hosting their annual Bazaar Bake Sale and Grandma's Attic Sale on Saturday and Sunday, November 5th and 6th. Donations needed for the Bazaar and Bake Sale include homemade artwork and crafts like pottery, crocheting, woodworking, painting, along with homemade canned goods, baked goods, and whatever else you would like to donate. The Grandma Ad Grandma's Attic Sale is accepting new or gently used donations for CLC's Welka fundraiser. Their church asks that you please wait until Thursday or Friday, November 3rd and 4th, to drop off your donations. More info to what to donate and what not or what's not accepted is on their website. A community All Saints Day service will take place at Oakland Cemetery and Marine on November 6th at 5 p.m. Following a short remembrance, candles will be placed on the graves in the cemetery. All are invited to join the service. Those of you who pick up your mail at Marine Post Office may have noticed the new lock boxes across from the PO boxes. This is a new system that makes it easier to get packages after hours. And here's how it works. If you find a numbered key in your post office box, go to the same numbered lock box, open it up and retrieve your package. Do remember to leave the key in the lockbox door after you take your package. If you have a yellow card in your P.O. box, it means you have a larger package waiting for you behind the counter. The Scandia Marine Food Shelf at Elam Lutheran Church is in desperate need of non-perishable items and monetary donations. Items can be dropped off at Christ Lutheran and will be delivered directly to the food shelf at Elam. River, in River Grove News, there continues to be a lot of news relating to the planned sale of the Wilder Forest property and its impact on River Grove Charter Elementary School that is currently located there. Wilder has an agreement to sell the 600 acre property to the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership, which plans to turn it into a camp. This of course, leaves the status of River Grove in question. Wilder Foundation officials tell River Radio that the closing on the sale won't happen for another nine to 12 months, but they are moving forward with it. River Grove officials remain quite critical of Wilder's actions to sell the property to the Catholic group. Republican State Senator Karen Housley, who represents the area, wrote a letter expressing her disappointment in Wilder's actions. She specifically criticized Wilder for what she called a clear lack of transparency regarding the process. A Wilder spokesman told River Radio this week that they believe the, concern, um, the concerns Senator Housley expressed were based on incomplete information about the situation and Wilder's good faith efforts with all parties involved. We outlined Wilder's timeline as they reported it to us in an extended news story on our October 1st River Radio Show. So if you haven't heard that, you may want to go back and listen to it. River Grove's executive director, Drew Goodson, takes issue with Wilder's stance. He told River Radio this week that in June, Wilder officials told River Grove and Manitou Fund, the owners of the neighboring property that was the former home of Warner Nature Center, that they would hear from Wilder before final decision was made. According to Goodson, the Wild Wilder Foundation walked away from this assurance and pursued the deal with the Catholic organization. Goodson says he's not had any conversations with some of the key officials at Wilder and says the foundation has chosen to have minimal engagement with River Grove at this point. Wilder officials told us they emphasize with the entire school community, but stand by their, or empathize, I should say, with the entire school community, but stand by their actions, which they say were transparent.
At the May Township board meeting on October 6th, the number of residents expressed concerns about traffic issues and other aspects of the potential for the Wilder property to turn into a camp. Others expressed support for the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership, but there was no action by the township board at that meeting. Needless to say, there are significantly different perspectives being expressed by Wilder Foundation and River Grove. May Township's board will eventually become more involved because they have to approve permits for use of the property. We will continue to follow the story and keep you up to date in future River Radio programs. The next time you hear from us, it will be live via Zoom on Tuesday, November 8th, election day or election night in that case. Gail and I will bring you live election night coverage just as we did two years ago. We'll be focused on results of the local races, state races in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and the national scene. Lori Sturdivant will be back with us, as will be uh, Brian Gruis, our political roundtable uh, team. Uh, Fred will be missing. I believe Fred's on his way to India on that day. Uh, but uh, Lori and Brian will be here to help us with that coverage. So that's Tuesday, November 8th at 9 p.m. Our next regular program will be on Saturday, November 19th. We'll be back with more great guests and an update on local news. Thanks again to our guests, Lori Sturdivant, Fred D. Sam Lazaro, Brian Gruis, and Dr. Kimberly Cox. We take you out with the suburbs. See you again live on election night, November 8th. And remember, you heard it right here on River Radio. Mm -hmm.